Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Sufert. Today, I am speaking with Thomas Petit, whom most people would probably better recognize as at ThomasBCN on Twitter. Thomas is a mobile growth consultant, and his list of clients reads like a catalog of European startups, so I won't try to single out the most notable of those, except to say that he has a wealth of experience in mobile growth and is someone with whom I confer frequently. Today, we exclusively discuss the topic of subscription apps. We talk about marketing, product strategy, pricing strategy, and other aspects of building successful subscription apps. I very much enjoyed the conversation, and I'm excited for the MDM community to hear it. Thomas recently launched a newsletter called MADV, which can be found at madv.substack.com. I've found a tremendous amount of value out of the first few episodes of the newsletter, and I recommend that everyone subscribe to it and, of course, to the MDM newsletter. I am happy to present Thomas Petit. Thomas, how are you? Hi, Eric. I'm great. Thanks. Thanks where, are you, uh, where are you chatting to me from today? I'm talking from my house. Uh, we're not moving a lot these days. My house is in Mallorca, Spain. But So you are French. I'm French. I live in Spain and I work with uh, apps all across Europe. It's a, yeah, it's a borderless world. Citizen of the world. Uh, so we, we have been kind of interacting online for a number of years. Uh, I believe we only have met once in, in person, mm -hmm. right? That was at the Applause uh, conference in Barcelona, which was, uh, which was quite the event. Yeah, quite the event. Back in the days where we could meet more people face to face. Uh, I hope you come visit uh, so at some point when all this, uh, all this mess is out. Like I would be very happy to see you again. Well, I, I told the applause people that uh, I will auto accept any invitation to that uh, conference that is sent my way. I love Barcelona. It's one of my favorite cities. Um, I always, you know, it's funny because you go to some of these conferences and it's like, if if you have the choice, why not do it in Barcelona? Why not do it? You know what I mean? Like some of these, like if you're, why is GDC in San Francisco? I mean, that's, that's a hill I will die on. Why is GDC in San Francisco? That needs to be moved somewhere pleasant and less expensive and less dangerous. Like take this opportunity, take COVID as an opportunity to move GDC out of San Francisco, move it anywhere else, move it to Vegas, move it to Europe. Why is that? Insane? It makes no sense to hold like the biggest, kind of most important gaming conference in the world in a very expensive, very dirty, very dangerous, kind of difficult to get to city. Anyway, that's my, uh, that's my rant. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds reasonable as, as logic. And I guess that's why they put the Mobile World Congress in, in Barcelona for so many years, because a lot that's of people, right. they're happy to come for business, but a lot of people, they're also happy to come because they stay over the weekend, they go to the parties, they, they have sun in the middle of February, which is not common for everybody in Europe. I guess that's a big reason to put the Mobile World Congress there. And yeah, um, I'm happy to go to events like South of Europe. You know, it's not where the biggest startups are, but I'm in all day to go to Lisboa, Porto or, or South of Italy. I'm in. Yeah, I just, and then, I, you know, I get invited to, I mean, I don't know, Slush is in Helsinki, which is just, I get it. But, you know, <laughs> it's like February in Helsinki. Why am I doing or uh, November in Helsinki? And I don't know. Any, anyway, um, today we're talking about subscription apps, but uh, why don't you give us a brief uh, overview of your history in the space, of your history in mobile, and uh, just of yourself? Yeah, thanks, Eric. So 
I started mobile about like seven years ago, I think, when actually gaming company didn't want me in because I didn't have a gaming background. Um, started working on a, on a video streaming app a little bit, basically because there was no mobile marketer at all. So I just thought I could do it. Uh, I joined full-time a, a fitness startup called 8Fit, where I stayed for a few years and growth was good in terms of like revenue, also headcount. So I learned a lot about, about going from zero to one, I'd say or zero from to 20 million in this case. And, and then I wanted to see more cases. So I became independent about three years ago and I worked with quite, quite a lot of subscription apps. I'm very specialized on subscription apps. Like most of my clients are in this space. Um, I'm very passionate about it. I think it's super exciting. It's also going up and to the right. So good space to be in. And I'm seeing more and more happening, right? Like this year is impressive, like new tools, new investors, really innovating innovative product like it's a super exciting space to be in at the moment um yeah so i'm independent i work for myself and and the main reason for that um besides the fact that i'm a little bit hard to work with when when i'm within a team <clears throat> say some people is that i can learn a lot more from seeing a lot of different cases and make like sort of patterns out of different maps of uh yeah this is not working for everybody stop trying it or this is working for, for everybody and not for you, you should iterate on it. And this is a very valuable insight for a lot of the early stage startups I work with. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true, especially with subscriptions, right? Because it feels like that is a category. Well, like, let's say that's a business model that spans a bunch of different content verticals uh, and it's evolving so rapidly. I mean, there's just new strategies kind of coming to light every month, I would say. Um, and so getting that, getting that, um, that overview of the market's really valuable. I mean, even I think, and the bigger one, and I mean, maybe we just jump into this right now is the web onboarding flow that kind of just that it spread like wildfire across all subscription apps. I mean, that's how a lot of subscription apps onboard people now just to get, to get around the, I think, so there's two, there's two reasons for it. There's two kind of motivations for that, the web and just to just to give a little context on what that is, right? So companies will be running ads against uh, against uh, web destinations, right? And then users click on the ads, they go to a web destination, and then they go through an onboarding. They kind of register. They you know they provide their their login details. Their, they they register their account, and then they're able to subscribe right then and there. Um, to the to the to the app subscription and then after they do that or if they do that or not um they're sort of like prompted to download the app and then once they download the app they can just log in um but then all the subscription stuff can be handled via email at that point so it's all outside of the purview of apple and google and so it totally uh evades the 30 percent platform fee um i think there's kind of a dual motivation though i mean obviously the 30 percent platform fee is is an important one but i think there's a dual motivation which is that you know the, the kind of web experience, like people are used to filling out kind of multi-part forms on web. I think with app, you know, the uh, kind of the kind of app uh, product management imperative is to just like abbreviate that onboarding period to the greatest possible extent. Whereas I think on web, people are more comfortable with just like multi-part forms. And so I think you get maybe, it, you know, kind of paradoxically, you get greater sort of completion rates with that longer web flow than you would get with the kind of equivalent, um, or then you would get with shorter completion, uh, shorter web flows on web, or sorry, sh shorter onboarding flows on web. Um, and that certainly you would get 
with the equivalent length onboarding process on, on the mobile app. What do you think about that? Which of those motivations do you think is stronger? Is the one you didn't mention. I, okay. I went through this process actually quite early. Uh, I think it was 2017 or 16, yeah, like, well, spans across there. And our motivations back then were, one, we think that web clicks are cheaper than mobile app install clicks. Two, people are not going to drop off like crazy on our store page that we don't control because we control a web page entirely and we don't control the store. And three, we're going to save on the 30%. Our three assumptions were all wrong. And even then, it was still interesting to do it. One, to broaden the audience because there's a lot of people you never reach if you only do app install um, campaigns. Uh, either because some networks don't target LAT people, either because some people, they never click on ads, but they click on web ads and the platform know it, so they don't show them ads. Actually, we broaden the scope. But the assumption were wrong in the sense that, one, it was not cheaper. Two, the, um, the length of the onboarding was actually not really a problem, and we had more problem putting it very long on the web than in the app. Once people had made the choice to download the app, actually the churn during onboarding was extremely low. Even with a, like a 20 screen onboarding, we could have 80% completion of this 20 screen, no problems. So, I mean, maybe for some apps this is the case, but I think this can be worked in app. And then, okay, we were saving 30% and paying 3% to Stripe. But the, the truth is the, the, the conversion, because you have to put your credit card or whatever, there was no Apple Pay right. back in the day was pretty much 27% lower. So we're not converting more people. Like basically we're converting pretty much the same amount of people um, at a slightly highest price. And what mm -hmm. we realized there is that the real value of moving out of the web beyond expanding and so on, and be, beyond the fact that you, the user doesn't care about the platform. The user wants the service, wants the benefit. Like it doesn't care yeah. if it's here or there. I think the real benefit here is that it, it becomes your customer. The problem of, I mean, the app store come with a load of positives about uh, security, about promotion, about the easiness of converting in-app because of face ID or touch ID or whatever. But Apple is in, is in I mean, the customer is in relation for Apple, for unsubscribing, for cancellation, for refunds, for a lot of things like this, for renewals and so on. There was a massive benefit in being, and massive benefit in customer relationship and talking to our users but also uh, financially. And not only because of the 30%, but for example, I'll tell you a very efficient tactic that I wish I could do in this store and I can't, which are partial refunds. So there's a number of people who will not realize that they're at the end of the free trial or whatever. And say, I've tried the product, I want my money back. Like, I don't care what your conditions are, I want my money back, I'm not happy. And in the store, what happened? You don't control that. The process is messy, it's complex. Users think you're trying to scam them, which is not true. You're just sending them how to do it and they're too lazy to do it. Uh, and, they, and, they, and then they refund, which not very topic, but there's the cost of refund. Anyway, the point where I want to go is when we were controlling the, the, the relationship with, the, with those users, we'll tell them, oh, you want to go? Yeah, no problem. But you know what? We'll make a counter offer. You can, we give you half of your money back right now and you get to keep the subscription. And the amount of people who were accepting this offer was very high. And this was super positive because users were delighted with the experience. We still make 50% of it. And the marginal cost of having an extra subscription out there is pretty much zero. Everybody was happy. So it gives you like, I don't know, it's just one way of doing it, but it gives you like the flexibility of managing subscription the way you want, not the way the platform wants, which in some extent right. is very good. 
but in some things is, is extremely not flexible. And now we, we've seen more things like introductory offers and promo codes and I don't know, there's all kinds of new products that have appeared around the last year. I'm talking three years ago and it was ridiculous. There were limited free trial lengths. There was no, no discount possible. Like making a discount is a crazy thing. Think of a referral program and you want to say, okay, if you invite your friend, I'll give you one month extra. That's something you can't do in, in, the, in the stores right now. Uh, you can trick it in the back in the back end, but this is actually very messy. Once you control this relationship, and I think it's a business fundamentals. When I talk to other subscription that I'm not in ad, they're telling me, what? You're not in control of the transaction? This is insane. Mm. Like this is the most critical part of your business. And I think that's the hidden reason behind it. I'm happy to give 30% to Apple if they give me access to my customer directly and not through whatever bizarre condition they want to put in the middle. Right. What is just to clarify, so that partial refund. So yep. you give them 50% back and they just remain a long-term subscriber or they only can they 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 they, re, they retain the subscription through the end of some month or so, the end of the month or some period. Well, in that particular case it was a, a yearly subscription we were still like experimenting with like monthly and quarterly and yearly and lifetime and whatever. But in this case it was a yearly. I was just basically telling them Okay, so you pay, I can't remember the pricing because we changed too, but let's say it was $50. Say, okay, I wire you back 25 now and your subscription will expire in one year. Like you still yeah. have the whole product for one year, which in 90% plus of the case, they won't going to use whether they have it or not, but that's yeah. another subscription problem. But they were delighted with the fact that we give them half of the money and they have the product. They felt they had right. the best deal ever. And we felt we also had the best deal ever because this client wouldn't have, you know, it would have been pissed if we don't refund. And if we refund, we get zero. We actually get yeah. a cost because there's a cost of refund. So uh, it was delightful for everybody, you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Huh. That's, a, that's a really good idea. But yeah, I mean, it's just to your point, that's, that's one of the things that you get, right? When you own that relationship and it's direct and, you know, you just have total flexibility to do that kind of stuff. There's one thing that surprised me is usually I thought you were pretty much in favor of the store because they do offer a lot of things too. Like, in the, like I mean, it's always pro and cons, two face of the two face of the coin. Like, they are very positive in um, working on the App Store and the Play Store for subscription, and uh, we can't hide it. But it's true that there are limitations in customer relationship that are very frustrating for for business. I usually heard you on the other side of the fence, so I'm I'm. I'm surprised you take that stance today, but the, there's always various various ways to look at at things. Well, no, I so I mean I think I, I, I'm not I'm not like I'm not like sort of like ideologically aligned with the app stores. I I do whatever I think is the most efficient. I think Webflows people people overestimate um, the sort of gains from going to Webflows, and I've seen this time and time yes. again because it's like oh well I skipped the thirty percent fee. So yeah, yeah, but you know like you said, web traffic actually can be more expensive. Right, because there's just not that much of it. Uh, there's yeah. relatively less of it, right, on mobile. Um, you know, now, and then you know, if then you start thinking about like sort of non kind of uh, standard, like if you start going outside of the channels that you would use for mobile app uh, distribution, right, into sort of just pure play mobile web or even desktop web for promoting an app, it gets really, really difficult, right? Like the the economics of that starts to to, to sort of deteriorate very rapidly. Um, and then the other, the other thing, the other problem about web is like, yeah, you skip the store process, but the store process can actually be like a really helpful filter, right? Because once you've gotten past someone past the store process, like there's a lot of intent there. Right. Um, so, and then the other problem with the, the other problem with the web traffic, uh, is like, yeah, well, you know, 
I, you know, you have to have a lot of social proof in order to get somebody to pull out their credit card and pay you right on the spot. Right. And like, if they're on the app store, especially the app store, if they're on the app store, they're vetted. Right. Like it's pretty hard to scam people on the app store. It's not impossible. And some subscription apps have done that. And we can talk about that. But um, if they're on the app store, it's like, okay, there's pretty low risk to me. I think I'm going to get my money back. If this is, if this is not what I think I'm buying, um, or there's a problem, I, I'm pretty sure I can get my money back from Apple. If I'm just doing some random, if I'm paying somebody right off the web after having just clicked an ad, there's a risk there. So I mean, there's, a, there's just a lot of friction uh, across all of those kind of touch points or all those sort of like various milestones in the funnel that make web onboarding really difficult. I, my point was just that that web onboarding kind of erupted, right? Like, I mean, once, once kind of the big uh, subscription apps moved into that and started doing it, I mean, that just sort of like, um, that just sort of permeated uh, through the entire kind of subscription space. I can really second you on that. And especially at this right timing when with everybody freaking out with like the change coming in January on, on iOS 14 and stuff. Because, oh, I need to move to the web right now. It looks easy. I say, no, it's not as easy as it looks. The opportunity is big, but easy is not going to be like, this is actually a very different mindset. Very few people are, have the skill to understand the app store ecosystem and the web ecosystem at the same time. Mm -hmm. like, I, right. I almost never meet anyone that is good at both. Um, yeah. I'm definitely better on the, on the, on the store one myself, but I, I'll second you with like two points. First one, I think was David Bernard from Revenue Card was saying, I mean, the, the conversion is higher, not only because of face ID and touch ID, but this feeling that I know Apple is in the middle and if something happened, I'm not going to get screwed because Apple right. will that. And, and David was saying, I think, I don't want to have my credit card across this 25 subscription I'm paying for. I'm happy that Apple is in the middle here and have them yeah. all. I get my credit card there. If there's a problem, I go there. Otherwise, yeah. it goes, you know, it, I mean, database leaks and some people yeah. are not honest. You, you never know who these products are. So he was saying there's a real benefit of having this like uh, in the middle. And the other one is about like these flows, like you say, on, on the web is one of my mistakes when we build this first web alternative to our, our app flow. One of our hypotheses was, look, guys, we're losing about 50 to 70 percent of user on the store page and we don't control it. If we could control that page, our our drop off at that particular step of the funnel would be much lower. And then we design beautiful landing page that we iterate on forever and A-B test and whatever. And the bounce rate on web is rather 90%, not, yeah, not right. 50%. And we're like, so, yeah. and suddenly it was a wake up call of, oh, actually the app store is doing pretty good in terms of landing page because we build our own and we're like four X worse than what yeah. it is there. There's no control. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're like, are we the one who sucks? So we went to talk to a few people on the web and say, no, actually your page is fine, but it's normal to see very high bounce rate. And at the end of the day, it acts as a filter also. And that's something that's not related to what you said, but it's quite important to remember is a lot of people try to increase just one metric and think it will trickle down all the way. But sometimes where you've got a high bounce rate at some point, let's say the store page or the first point, it actually filters out the most like uh, highest intent people. Sometimes there's good drop off. There's people you don't, if you force yeah. them into the next step, uh, maybe they're going to end up seeing your payroll at some point, but they're so low intent that it's pretty useless to force people into it. There are, there are optimization, but you can't force it too much is what I wanted. Right. Say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, I mean, that's totally true. I think that's something that, um, you know, that's a problem to like, uh, to your point about, you know, this, when you start moving in this direction, kind of like in a, in a sense, cross platform, um, you know, you start uh, overlapping with 
a lot of these uh, sort of like web-based quote unquote growth people, like the growth hackers, and they just don't get that. I, I think fundamentally that's not a part of like the growth hacking curriculum, which is like the dynamic that exists between all of these metrics, right? Like I, I could improve, I could a endlessly A-B test an onboarding flow. And all that's going to mean is my retention goes down. Like I could endlessly A-B test my onboarding flow and have the same exact revenue. I mean, there's not, there's, there's not necessarily um, a sort of direct increase in my revenue uh, that, that sort of maps to a, an increase in my um, onboarding, you know, conversion or my onboarding sort of uh, uh, continuation, right, in that funnel. And, but like when you start moving into that direction, the, the people that, that do that, the people that have experience in that, they're like the growth hackers who just don't get that. Like they don't get, in general, I mean, you know, my, my my general impression of a growth hacker is just someone like let's do a bunch of baby tests and that's all that's and my entire purview is uh you know the the distance between some point a and some point b in this funnel and that's all i care about right and you're telling me there's differences uh in sort of traffic i don't care the traffic composition is not something i care about you're telling me that there's there's differences when i change that funnel um, in sort of like uh, conversion rates down funnel after that my point B that I, that I, that's a sort of like boundary of what I care about. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. All I care about is I've got this point A in the funnel and point B. Everything else is hidden from me. And I just want to sort of move that line up from the percentage of people that start at A and get to B. That's my only objective. Um, and I think on mobile, you know, the, I think the reason that maybe the, the people that work on growth, uh, and I, I don't mean to like, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of, in a very generalized way, like bucket people on mobile, uh, you know, uh, into some group that is, is like sort of like on average better or smarter, uh, or more sort of like, um, considerate, uh, than the web people. It's just, this has been my experience and there are a lot of bad people on mobile too. And there's, I've, there's some good people on web, but, but like, you know, in general, a lot of those, a lot of those, um, those points on the funnel are just more controlled on mobile. Right. So like I've got the app store and I can do stuff there, but it's mostly standardized. Right. Like there's a template. I can't do everything. Um, right. I can't, you know, I, I can't uh, have a big banner at the top. Right. I mean, my, my, my assets have to fit into that template. So like I can iterate on those assets, but really there's only, there's only so much agency I have there. Um, and then, you know, uh, the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the uh, inbound, the sort of inbound piece, the inputs, from ads, like, well, okay, I'm working with Facebook, I'm working with Google, and I'm working with some other networks. A lot of that's kind of standardized too, right? I mean, I can try, I can do stuff with the content, but I can't do stuff with like the format. Um, and so I think a lot of that stuff is just yeah. Even in-app, if you think about it, like the, the flexibility, the liberty to A-B test to the extreme is actually more limited on, on apps. I mean, there are A-B testing system, but they're not as, you can't switch so many variants as you can on web. Yeah. Like, and maybe it's the fact that we can't go to that extreme that leads a lot of people to think a little bit bigger picture. I think the, what you refer with the low-level growth hacker is that the term got too famous and everybody jumped in and had this narrow vision of A to B. The, the yeah. best growth people I know that try to have a vision beyond that and segmentation and down funnel and so on. One, they don't A-B test like to, that ex, like to that extreme. They do A-B test at specific stage and specific steps, but they would never want to be called growth hacker anymore. Like because it right. had come as a term that is like, oh, you're you're kind of the bad gross person if you call right. yourself that. But there's a shitload of like super 
great gross person on the web and I'd love to see what they do in mobile. And sometimes they look at our work and they're like, oh, you're so limited. How do you work in that environment? Like you don't control the store page, your A-B tests are super limited. You can't like, the tools are not as developed. And I think it's part of the fun for me in the sense that it, it, it's consolidating now and more professional, but it's a bit more of a far west and you have to act with constraint and you have to be even more creative than just take A to B, make your infinite A-B test, uh, this is just the wrong way to think. And there's a great quote about that. I just remember now that uh, I, I was, I mean, it's not recent and I don't even know who said it, which is if you A-B test a product too much, everything end up being a porn website. And because <laughs> yeah. it's just what works, you know? And that's fucking yeah. brilliant. This is, this is, I mean, I, I have nothing around porn website. They do big business and so on, but not every product should be a porn website. And, right. and it actually really show how, the narrow vision is of okay that step optimize this what, what do i end to i end up showing boobs and it works better you know because yeah. you have no criteria about who is this audience what's the usp what's the brand what's coming after what will i do with this user does it does it hurt the retention does it attract a different kind of user and so on and this is where also you recognize smart gross people is actually like gross sort of the intersection of product data and marketing you need to have all these vision to not limit yourself into the narrow a to b kind of kind of process and and that's how you recognize the the solid one whether they're in mobile yeah. or web doesn't matter to me right yeah 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 i mean it, you know we're all we're all sort of like we all everyone should have the same ultimate goal right yeah. and I, I just you know which is like revenue and i mean even even a lot of times um those a b tests like you know i, I don't think it, people aren't like that uh tunnel visioned right like where they're just thinking oh well the percentage was higher so that's a win i mean i think a lot of times they're bringing in like a sense of arpu or whatever but um you know the the, the idea there though is that like well okay that's arpu for that specific for, for people that went through that specific part of the funnel that was like optimized in this way for arpu but like what about you know how how are you controlling that for a traffic composition i mean that's my that's my big the, that's the big thorn in my side is that like a lot of times these people they don't they don't care about the traffic composition and as that changes well, then the, fun, the, the sort of optimization that you implemented is no longer valid, right? So two bits to that. The first one is this is where you see like gross people who come more from the marketing side. They segment to infinity the composition of traffic and segment of channel and OS and whatever. They came to through that ad and that network and so on. But they have very few. They look at funnels as like, okay, this guy has signed up and paid. I don't care about the rest. And then you've got more product-led people who come to growth who are like extremely focused on like looking at every step and what are the different flow and go very deep in the funnel and the whys and hypothesis, but they have no idea of the traffic composition. And sometimes the stuff goes to hell without them understanding why, because you need to have like both the access to understand what how the product is, is reacting in a way. And even though you consider both things, like let's say segments and, and events uh, to simplify, be careful about over-optimizing for revenue. Like there is a fantastic learning that I got from the, an old uh, CMO at Booking, um, has become a bit of a mentor at some point, is an investor now, brilliant guy. And it told us repeatedly when he was seeing us iterating, like be careful about short-term gains that end up being long-term loss you're over-optimizing for very short-term revenue. Yeah, sure, your payback period is insane, but look how much you're churning, guys. It's also insane, like, and it will come back and bite you in the ass because you're only optimizing for extreme short-term revenue. 
And while this is good as a startup because you need to survive, this will not enable you to grow to these 10x or 100x or whatever you're aiming for. You're only going to 2x with this. You have to think bigger picture. And, and it, of course, it was harder in execution, but we started putting secondary metrics to every test about, oh, how much is it hurting um, the retention? Oh, look, here I put the Facebook single sign-on, but suddenly nobody is reading my email. And I was generating 10% of sales through emails. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. that Apple or Facebook is in the middle, I'm not doing those sales anymore. And we started putting like a lot of secondary metrics in the, in, the, in the experimentation. And the truth is that it made everything more complex, but it also led us to think bigger picture than just, okay, can I make, can I make this user pay today? Like, and I think on the long term, it was beneficial. On the short term, uh, huh, it was a challenge. Yeah. Um, what do you think about hybrid models like combining subs with different IAPs or like freemium with like a sub upgrade? Well, I, there's kind of two parts to this. So like, I think, you know, right now, if you look at the landscape of subscription products um, on mobile, mm -hmm. right, you're, it's, it's a lot of health and fitness, a lot of uh, uh, streaming, like streaming content. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still big pockets or like, I would say like the, the vast majority of the mobile landscape uh, is not doesn't really implement subs in a meaningful way. And, and by that, I really mean just gaming. Um, yeah. yeah, I've seen some interesting stuff being done with games where, you know, you'll have a subscription, but that's really more of like reserved for like the kind of highest LTV players um, where, and a lot of times actually subscription, I've seen this happen a bunch of times in games. Uh, the subscription players will end up spending more on IAPs after subscribing. Right. So like, I think a, a big concern with a lot of gaming companies is that, okay, we'll implement a subscription and that's good because it's like, um, you know, it's recurring revenue, but we're going to cannibalize all our IAPs. And I've seen that actually the opposite happens. Um, they end up, because uh, the, the, a lot of times there's almost like a confounding variable here. It's like, well, why did they go with the subscription? Because they wanted to be more competitive. Well, when the script, subscription made them more competitive and everyone started becoming more competitive, then they had to revert to more IAPs because like that just, the subscription just changed like the competitive baseline. Anyway, uh, I'd like to hear what are your thoughts on like, so subscriptions moving like kind of cross vertical, like wh where do we see subscriptions moving um, mm -hmm. into other sort of like, um, into sort of other other app verticals and like what kind of hybrid models do you, do you see uh, taking root, if any? So I'm actually super bullish about subs subscriptions going hybrid model. The ones who are already on subscription realizing that they're leaving a lot of money on the table. And I think here, yeah. one of the reasons that a lot of gaming are not doing subscription, most of them, is that they already find a way to milk user for their money in the best possible way, which is mm -hmm. a lot of people will never pay nothing. They still manage to show them ads and invite their friends. A lot of people are uh, okay to pay $1, $2 here and there to buy a Candy Crush Live or whatever, and they manage to extract it. And a very few people, they're willing to pay in the hundreds, sometimes even thousands to play that game because they're hooked and they also manage to extract it. So they sort of maximize the possible value. And the problem of the subscription, I mean, the beauty of the subscription model is that makes it more predictable and investors love it. And you know, next year you're going to extract money again. And, and it brings a little bit of security on the fact that you've got this recurring revenue. But the, there is a major flow in that, that the hybrid model can partly solve, is that you've got both uh, a low ceiling and a high floor. A high floor because not everybody wants a renewable subscription. People got 
trapped into the free trial before they got scared. There are countries like China and Germany where the subscription model is actually looked with a lot of skepticism because users that just don't like it. So right by putting a subscription in front, you're already um, like putting a very high barrier of entry instead of having yeah. a one, two, five dollar UAP, you've got a, a 50, 60, hundred dollar UAP straight on. This particularly a problem for an app I worked with that is doing decent business in tier one countries, but has a lot of users in, in let's say tier two and three countries. And we try to lower the price of the subscription a bit. Like I think we lowered by three X compared to the States, but it's still a high barrier to entry for these people. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, but there are a lot of people they would pay like for maybe a daily pass or weekly pass. Uh, not everything is meant to be a subscription. By putting a subscription, you're putting a very high floor and you're not making money out of this user who have maybe less interest in renewing or less, uh, let's say, acquisition power. The other problem, and I think it's even a much bigger one, is you're putting a low ceiling, which is once a user has paid, you've got nothing more to extract from. And this is where I'm particularly bullish here. I'm, I'm not talking about putting ads to free user and then the user pay uh, subscribe. I say, once you have a subscriber and is hooked to your product, upsell stuff to him. So, mm -hmm. and there are many ways to do that. You've got, maybe you've got a second product, a second tier of subscription, super, super duper premium. Um, maybe you can bundle it for the family like Spotify da does. I think you can actually sell extra AP even to your subscriber, even if it's tricky so that they don't think, hey, well, I'm even paying the subscription. And the one thing I'm actually very bullish on is selling them non-digital goods, which is what Sweat has been doing, like Kayla uh, in the fitness app. Yeah, She's got right, this yeah. shop that uh, I think is extremely amusing that is called the Sweat Shop, but um, that's <laughs> where the subscriber were very hooked. They're also part of a community. They want yeah. the swag and they're ready to pay insane price for it because it has the brand and so on. And you go there and a bottle of water is like, I don't know, $30. It's like, what? This costs like 50 cents to produce. Yeah, but it's got a brand on it. And who, who are paying for this material? Those who already have the subscription are paying $20 yeah. months. You can extract more out of the user who are already convinced into your brand and our power user and ambassadors and whatever. And the problem with many, many subscriptions is that they reach the ceiling of, okay, I'm giving you $60 a year or whatever. That's it. There's nothing more. Um, one way we were exploring, for example, at uh, 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 fit with nutrition is to bundle it with like um, have a super expensive subscription on top of the normal digital subscription where we would deliver veggies and fruits uh, to your home all the time through Instacart. Like, and that's where I'm bullish about. So for some people, maybe it's a premium subscription. For some people, maybe it's uh, like merch. For some people, it's a product that can be bundled with it and make sense. And here, there's also massive opportunity. I was talking to a company that I, like sort of a bizarre wear, small wearable that they're producing. I say, look, our model is going to be that we're going to sell the subscription and the device is going to come for free. I say, ah, that's interesting. But if you sell the first subscription with the device, then you don't have to pay the 30% because it's actually a physical good. So you have to frame it in a way that the first payment is for the device so that mm. Apple doesn't charge you, but the renewals, they're pure digital and you still don't pay the, the commission. I mean, we're still back to this 30%, which I think is not the right way to think. What I'm, what the big picture here is think how you can uh, fight against low ceiling in subscription. 
what can you upsell to your existing customers? Can you upsell them another product, a physical product, yeah. another subscription? Maybe, you, and, and we start seeing, I've got a French friend who launched this newsletter about mobile partnership, like different apps that work together to bundle things together. Because once you've got a payer, I mean, it's the, the reality in subscription is the same as it is in gaming. It's like a very tiny percentage of people will end up paying, uh, depending on the geography, maybe one, two, five percent. But out of these, you can extract more values, uh, more value than just, okay, it's because a lot of people think about the subscription as a very binary thing. Either people are subscribed and they get the full product or they're not subscribed and they don't get it. And I yeah. think a lot of the, the next wave of extra revenue for people who are already working subscription is going to come from that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally uh, aligned with you there. I think, um, you know, the problem is, I mean, just like you said, it's the low ceiling issue. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of people like this, uh, a lot, of, let's say a lot of investors like the subscription model because, because of that regularity and the predictability. But like, if someone's willing to subscribe and again, that's just that payer dynamic, that sort of payer di binary, like if someone's a payer in general, um, you know, the, like whatever price you just sort of like arbitrarily set, like what's the probability that that's the max they're willing to spend? Like you just hit it right on the head. Right. I mean, in general, like the, the sort of for people that 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 find enough of a use case, enough value in an app to, to spend something the the ceiling on what they're willing to spend is very high. Um, and and, and so, like almost no subscription is going to capture that. And a lot of times, you know, like because I, I don't know, and maybe this this sort of merges with another topic we want to talk about, but like price price experimentation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like that that can get done to death. Right. And I mean, I think once you've found once you've found that sort of hurdle price, I think a lot of times people just end up spending way too much time trying to optimize that. And I've very kind of rarely seen beyond like beyond like kind of more conceptual testing between like, hey, let's let's try a low versus a mid price or let's try the high price. Right. Beyond that, like I've never really seen that be sort of like micro optimized to any great effect. Have you? Yeah, I did, but I also see people are testing two small things. They're testing forty dollars against fifty dollars on everything. Like, and you have to be quite radical to fight big wins because right. we're talking mostly about startups here. But then you grow up a little bit and say you're Calm or Tinder. I mean, you find a plus two percent is actually we're talking sure, about yeah. millions here. So it is worth doing that because they have the amount of data anyway to do that. There's always a lot of the people who over experiment. And, and put too much emphasis, so, okay, seven day again, 14 days trial and $40 against $50 and this introductory offer and this and that and that and that. One of the problems is they don't make radical enough choice. They, they should try, okay, 30 against $150. Like be, be the less data you have, the more in speed you have and the more you haven't milked down that road of experimentation, the more radical you should be. And then you arrive to a point where the gain becomes so marginal that you have either to focus elsewhere or to put the table completely down again, because there's many ways to skin that cat. Like, and there's something you mentioned investors, and I think they're, they're thinking about the subscription the wrong way about this predictability, just because they should think about, they, they, they're supposed to take the risk and they're looking about how to limit the risk. It's just kind of weird to me, which is they're making parallel with, with what they know about subscription, which are SaaS business and, content subscription business. The thing is that mobile subscription business, the, the renewals are entirely different. Like the renewal, why Spotify and Netflix are all on a monthly subscription? Because they don't churn. Uh, SaaS yeah. are very different. 
once you're in and you have, like, I don't know, you've got your data in there and you've onboarded, which is more complicated, you're not going to go. But the truth of mobile subscription is people churn hard, very hard. And a lot of these renewals that bring the predictability to the model, for me, is actually problematic because a very high amount of these renewals, they're coming from users who are not coming back. We're just extracting them money again because they accept it. Right. Yeah. Every year I will extract them $50, even though they don't even remember about me. Like, and, yeah. and I think this is like a real, real problem of, of subscriptions today. Um, and this experiment, back to that, like, no, I, I kind of, maybe people do it the wrong way that they're not radical enough, but I've seen a number of massive improvements through them, especially early on, but even after. And if I look, I mean, you, you, you know, like probably a bunch of, of listeners, but not all of them, that I come from the acquisition side in, initially. And you reach a point where three, four years ago, like genius acquisition people could make a lot of difference for a business. It's not true anymore. Like Google and Facebook just serving you the same way, whether you're, I mean, you can make difference through creative and so on. But they reach a point where acquisition is a business model competition. And if you find this five or 10% increment in monetization, even if it's not huge on the bottom line right now, it might be the difference between triggering a lot of volume on the acquisition side or not. Like sometimes these algorithmic uh, acquisition machine, they're very binary. If you pass a threshold, suddenly there's a ton of volume coming up. And I've seen firsthand how in, a, in, a, in an app that, was, that already iterated on its paywall quite a bit, uh, fine one day after 10 fails of experiment, one that bring plus 15 or 17 percent and this really unlocked us like absolutely massive volume like 17 percent mm. of what we had before was not that much but 17 percent of what we had with the extra volume of acquisition that unlocked was actually massive and here the the other problem about not being radical enough is people think about pricing experiment about okay here's my paywall screen what can i do with it oh i can make the button bigger and i can put a, a banner on top and i can change the the bullet points this is also the wrong way to think. You need to think about the whole, in which state of mind is the user when you're seeing this paywall? What is the flow of different paywall? Um, I was dis discussing on, on, on Subclub this week like uh, with somebody who works in, in pricing experiment. It was like, oh yeah, so I show them the full price and if they skip, I show them a 30% discount. And if they skip again, I send them an email with 50% discount. I say, Maybe that's, that's right. That's already better than just doing the paywall. Give them something else. Like on the second time, maybe give them a daily pass. On the third time, tell them they've got a three months if they invite somebody. On the fourth time, like I mean, you have to think about the people hit the paywall several times. Uh, and if you're if they only hit the paywall once and they go out, is that you're doing something wrong? You're too aggressive with your paywall. So here, be more radical. But the other one is yes, yeah, start thinking about A to B. A lot too many people they're stuck in what you described before about. People see my paywall, they need to pay. What can I change on that screen that make it pay? And the best experiment I've seen on paywall experimentation, they are the ones that work on the onboarding screen that are before the paywall. In which state of mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you an extremely funny anecdote. The other day I was reviewing the, actually it was the web version of, a, of, a, of an onboarding flow of an app I work with. And just before the paywall, there's this loading screen and that took like maybe three or four seconds to load before I had the screen. And I told the PM, dude, can we not shorten this, this moment? Like it's taking too long and like I'm waiting. It's not good. He told me, oh no, I've tested it. Actually, 
it only takes me like, I don't know, one point, point, point 0.1 second to, to load this. But I've A-B tested that if I put it three or four seconds, people think I'm personalizing the plan for them. And their intent huh. to buy is actually higher because yeah. the questions before they're like, okay, tell me that you're more like this, more like this, more like that. And the copy is saying, okay, we're preparing your own super customized right. stuff. And when you put that loading screen longer, people's intent were higher because they like the, the product was not factoring this question. Into yeah. It. That was so like, they're thinking like, wow, there's some real work being done here to personalize this for me. Yeah, exactly. So, and here, I mean, it's anecdotal, okay? I'm not saying it would work. I think it was an extremely, uh, I wasn't expecting it. I think it was fucking brilliant from the PM. Um, but my point here is stop thinking about your payroll. Think about the whole flow, think the bigger picture, how people get there, what are they gonna see after. One of, of our interesting uplift coming from a payroll experiment is making the skip button much bigger. Because as many people who iterate on this page, we notice that if we hide it a little bit, gray text or a small cross at the at the corner, more people stop the trial. But then they don't conf confirm the trial. You got shitload of refunds and bad reviews. If you make this skip button obvious, you churn people less, you make less dissatisfied people, and you've got a second opportunity to monetize them differently. Maybe with a discount, maybe with a non-renewable, maybe with nothing, but they're gonna invite their friends or whatever. And here for me it was also counterintuitive, like. Don't hide how to skip the paywall. This is a mistake. This is a mistake of people who try to go from A to B instead of thinking of the big picture, like you just said at the beginning. This is the gross hacker mentality. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of tunneled, tunneled a few abstraction layers lower uh, than uh, let's, let's have, let's uh, inception back up um, to, I, I kind of, because the, the pricing thing, I kind of want to just um, plant a flag there because I think it's really important. But so my point there was that I think people, to exactly kind of, I think aligned with what you're saying is my people over, they try to over optimize that by just within a very tiny band, um, experimenting, uh, with like every possible, like, you know, we're, well, we've, we've like, you know, we've, we're, our price is 39.99. Let's try like 30, 39, 59, or, you know, let's try, uh, like, let's try 40, 40, 99, like, you know, just the, the kind of like, um, oscillating between these these very like with with these like sort of like very slight variations and my sense is like at some point you know there's just diminishing returns there i think um yeah. to kind of to your point though about the hybrid model my sense is that like uh, people they, they spend so much time thinking about like i and yeah sure if you get another two percent out of the switch between 30.99 and 31.99 if you're at tinder scale that's that's very meaningful to you but my sense is for most companies that's that's actually not the best way to to sort of uh, to sort of pursue their time, the, the best way is to think about like, okay, well, we've got the subscription now. Like, how do we sort of how do we tackle that consumer surplus problem? Like, this person, like, if we've if we've cleared that hurdle where we're bringing on someone who's worth who's who's willing to spend thirty nine ninety nine, that's probably not the exact amount they're willing to spend, right? I mean, we could probably present them with more value um, that they're willing to ex you know exchange money for. And so, like, what's the real what's the real uh, what's the real ceiling there? And now that's not to say that that person should have seen a hundred dollar subscription, right? Because let, let's say like you've got two people, person A is willing to spend a hundred dollars. Person B is, is really only willing to spend 39 99. That's not, that's the, the best way to sort of tackle that issue is probably not to do personalization in a way that, that sort of like profiles person A and presents them with a hundred dollar subscription and profiles person B and presents them with 39 99 subscription. A, that's just like really hard to do very well. I mean, it can be done, but it, it takes a lot of sort of, 
uh, infrastructure. And B, uh, you can run into real problems with your community when they people find out that they're paying different prices for the same stuff. I think the better way to approach that is instead of trying to optimize the subscription bundle at the highest possible price point at the right out of the gate, the, the, the best way to do that is to sort of like prove out that initial pay or don't pay hurdle, collect more data about the user, and then to serve up st other stuff that they would potentially find value in that they could purchase. And now that maybe that's a physical good, um, maybe that's uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a more um, kind of esoteric type of content, right? Because if you think about like health and fitness streaming, they're, they're both kind of content apps, right? And we could talk about this in a second, but like they're both, they're both kind of serving up content. Uh, health and fitness is serving up content for some sort of like purpose, um, you know, that, that generally sort of like is fulfilled in, in, you know, the, the real world space. And then the content is just sort of consumed in real time. But like, how do you, how do you sort of like then craft that content in a way and serve it up to the person that's already made the subscription that sort of like eliminates that consumer surplus that like gets them to sort of like find that total value, um, the max possible value that they could find in this app and then also exchange money for. It. I feel like that, that feels like the next frontier in, in subscriptions. It sounds like you think that that's true as well. I'm not so sure fitness and content are, are, are that much alike in terms of uh, how, the, how the provider is positioned and how people leave the content, but they, they, they are similarities. Where, where I am completely agreeing with you is that uh, it is complex to go to this level of personalization and people undervalue the fact that you can do things later. It, and especially in the fitness like uh, vertical in the store, sort of a playbook that everybody's doing the exact same. The payroll comes at the same time at the same price and nobody's trying to think out of the box here. But you can perfectly lower your price and sell something else after because maybe the meditation class are not included and they come in extra because maybe it's fitness and nutrition. I can sell nutrition stuff on top of it because maybe that day you've got this super duper influencer that is serving content, but that's on premium. Just like on Disney, you need to pay whatever $30 to get Mulan or something. Well, maybe uh, in the yeah. fitness class, the day you well, have this super influencer, you need to put this extra 10 bucks just the same way. But do you think that's, I think that's, that's the kind of canonical example of what I'm talking about. Was it Mulan know. or was, it was Mulan, right? It was, yeah. So, they, so basically the, the, for, for just for people that don't know, you know, D Disney plus subscription is pretty cheap. Um, and what they did was, you know, they couldn't do a theatrical release for Mulan and they just released it quote unquote on Disney plus and they charged a pretty, uh, a pretty, uh, meaningful ticket ticket price for that it was 20 something dollars i think it's five dollar per month on subscription and 30 dollars to see mulan on top right of it. A really it's insane a, difference like, yeah but to me i mean that 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 felt um really innovative hmm. i don't know that, that feels like a really innovative thing to do that you wouldn't yeah. expect from like a big company like a disney yeah, and, and it's going against where we've gone the last years. But again, like now that pretty much everybody is doing the same thing, especially in the fitness space, this is where you have to innovate. I remember many years ago when in fitness subscription were barely starting, we're looking at how people on the web were doing it. And some of them at prices that were completely ridiculous. Like I'm talking thousands of dollars instead of $15. And there was this website, I think it was called Coda, but I'm not entirely sure that was selling the sessions one by one, like not renewable, but the session yeah. was super high quality and people there who didn't churn, they were really paying big, big amounts. And in a way, before we went to subscription, they already found the way to push the ceiling higher and we become blind to it because we're looking around, 
What is the other one doing? How can I be test on my paywall? What can I do there? And start thinking all the same. And I, and I think there's still a lot of things that can be reinvented. I'm still mobile. Like the one I'm bullish on is basically upselling to existing subscriber. And I think this is this is a way where there is a lot, a lot, lot, lot of margin. I'll, I'll still say something else on the pricing on, and, and that is related to ceiling. You talk about the low elasticity of this particular person who's willing to pay $100 and the other one only $39.99. My, my experience with this pricing subscription has been, it's pretty simple to summarize, is always raise your price, like basically. Yeah. Uh, the highest price always win. And the reason I believe behind that is that only a small percentage of people are willing to pay for app subscription. But those, they are extremely not sensitive to how much it is. And basically, if it's 50 or 100, it's the same. And I heard a couple of investors say, no, nah, but there's the Netflix effect. If you if you charge more than $9.99 per month, nobody's going to pay it because they're going to compare it to Spotify or Netflix or whatnot. And then I'm seeing apps that have much higher price succeed really well. One example is Speechify, which is a like um, an an app that's growing very fast, like that can basically transform anything into an audiobook, website, PDF, book, scan, whatever. And mm -hmm. I think the price is one, 150 or something. And they don't have monthly, they don't have discount. Yeah. And they're converting well. I mean, this barrier is not true. I'm working with another app that went from yearly to monthly. And they're like, yeah, monthly, nobody can do more than $10. And then they experimented 10 versus $15. And the conversion barely moved because those people who yeah. were willing to pay, they are going to pay anyway. And at some point when we realized that in pricing experiment, which I went, it was quite a few years ago, but I went through that crazy experiment. We're experimenting, I think, uh, 50 versus 100. And then we noticed the conversion didn't lower much. So we're like, you know what? We're going to launch a second version of this experiment. We're going to sell it for like, I can't remember if it was 200 or 300, like completely ridiculous price compared to the market who everybody was $50 at the time. Yeah. And it was revenue positive. But the founder came and say, yeah, but we've got a problem here. I'd rather extract $10 from a hundred person than a thousand dollars from one person because we're going to have less people in the product, less community, less virality, less data for the product team. I want this to be like something that everybody has. I've got this big vision. And so I'd prefer leaving a little bit of money on the table and have more users who pay less than having only a few elite users who were extracting the maximum amount of, of, of money from them, but we leave everybody else on the table. Um, the lesson here is that elasticity is very low, but at the same time, don't push it. It also have like perverse effect. Yeah, well, I mean, I've talked about this a bunch um, on the on the on mobile dev memo like that, that, that there's a, it's, this is an optimization problem, right? And so it's a dynamic, right? Like there's trade offs. Um, and, you know, th th there are kind of, um, uh, there are sort of like beneficial uh, effects, right, of having a big user base, right? You know, you, you get people talking about it, you get more people talking about it in a cafe and people overhear it, or you get, uh, you know, just in general, um, there's more buzz, right? So that, that viral effect. But I think one of the, one of the, one of the benefits that people under, that, that people downplay is just that churn becomes kind of less meaningful, right? Um, so like, if you've got one person spending $100,000 a year, Right. If they churn, you're dead. Right. Uh, you know, versus a uh, hundred thousand people spending $1 a year, if, if you, you know, uh, if any given person's churn rate is, is the same. So like, um, or the probability of churn, like the kind of distribution mm -hmm. of, of, of probabilities. And so like, um, that is, that is a benefit. I think, um, now then kind of, but this kind of, 
you know, ties pretty well into what we've been talking about is like, well, if, if I just set the, the bar um, at the point that just clears the most people, well, obviously that's free, right? And that's why freemium um, is a powerful business model. But like, if I'm going with a subscription and I set the bar at, at the, the sort of, at the, the price point that just onboards the most people, um, you know, then, then I could sort of like move that price up or down and I'm going to have, you know, higher or lower conversion rate. And to, I think your point here is that like, generally people are surprised, um, by, you know, how, how much, you know, how, how little that conversion rate can change, um, given some, um, given some change of price. But my, I think, I think what, what, what sort of like supports the idea of the power of like upselling or the hybrid model is like, well, if I set that bar, like, like low enough to where I just sort of like onboarding the max number of people that have to that still have to pay. Um, well then I can sort of still over time evaluate the people that are probably the most valuable to me and then provide them value in return, you know, in exchange for them paying me something else on top of that. Right. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of lose that opportunity if you just set the price point way too, too high because, well, there's, there's such a smaller user base, um, and maybe they're already maxed out. And so you, you're still leaving money on the table, like, like your, uh, like your, your boss said, uh, well, I'm leaving money on the table. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to leave money on the table to have a bigger user base, but with that small user base, you're kind of leaving money on the table too, because you're missing out on everybody who would have paid a little bit less or a, li a little bit less than that. Right. So the idea here is not to just, you can optimize for like, well, when, when do I just make the most revenue at what price point? Um, you know, excluding people like, like losing out on the money, of people that would have paid more and, and losing money. Uh, but, but getting all the, uh, all the money from the people who are only able to pay that, um, you know, that price point, but, but, but then you're still losing, there's still that consumer surplus. So you can optimize at that point if you can only charge one price once, but it, when you get into this sort of like product and it's a total product mentality, how can I bring more value to this? that I can charge on a one-off basis or charge for a different subscription tier. Then you start to attack that consumer surplus and you get kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, there's a couple of apps that I'm hearing now that are entering very crowded space, such as sleep, like lots of subscriptions in that space, Yeah. but they're coming up in one is even going to go entirely free, no subscription at all. But, uh, one model I heard was like, okay, I'm going to put it much just as good as the rest and much cheaper, but people have other problems and I'm going to upsell it because I've got this in-app like coaching stuff that is all extra and that's 200 per hour that's not like yeah. we're not talking about 30 per year here we're talking right. hundreds per hour and it's like uh, i want to break this market by doing what the other people are not doing and i don't know if it's going to succeed i thought it was a great idea and and i heard a couple of people adapt it to their own vertical lately i think it adds just really well into what else what other value can I provide to the people who are interested in my first offering and that not right. enough people are, are doing and think of subscription as a binary thing. You're a subscriber and you're not. And that's probably uh, one, one way in which subscription will evolve, a future of subscription. Yeah, just like in a way that, no, Apple is bundling its product uh, to upsell you higher per month, but they want you to hook into their ecosystem too. So now they're bundling like iClouds and TV Plus and so on so that you can use that. And maybe you're gonna do pay-per-view on the equivalent of Mullen tomorrow. Like, I think we all need to think bigger than this guy is my subscriber or is not. It's converted to my paywall or, or is not. And yeah, no, yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, um, well, it's interesting because I mean, I think if you uh, like kind of a, almost as like a, uh, a reframe of your, um, you know, you A-B test, uh, every aspect of a, of a website, uh, after long enough, it turns into a porn site. Well, like if you, if you sort of like price test, um, 
for like max revenue, uh, a product after long enough, it becomes freemium, right? Because I mean, that's just like you get the max scale and then you can sort of like max out the kind of um, per user contribution. Um, and, you know, business models just kind of ebb and flow, right? Like, you know, part of what made subscription, I think, popular at one point was just almost as a kind of um, consumer rebellion against freemium because people were like, no, I just want to pay something and get, you know, and know what I'm getting and not have to pay anymore. And then, of course, well, like, yeah, that works. Um, but we're, we, we know we're kind of leaving money on the table. So why don't we, why don't we do this? We'll, we'll let you do the subscription and then we're going to add some stuff on. Well, actually now we want to get the most people as possible and we're actually going to lower the subscription price and add even more add-ons that are one-offs. And at some point we're just going to load to zero and then everything's <laughs> a one-off and now we're a premium product, but we, we say we're a subscription product, but I kind of want to talk about, we have like 20 minutes left. I want to talk about, um, the future subs. Cause I think that's, that's something we talked about, uh, uh adding to the, the topic list. And I think this, this kind of segueing really nicely into that. So like, you see this happening in like, and you talk about crowded spaces, like meditation, probably the crowded space, mm-hmm. right? And sleep is becoming that as well. Um, you know, and I don't think I'm seeing a race to the bottom there. And maybe I'm just not seeing it. Maybe it's happening. But like, do you think there's a, a race to the bottom, a bottom with price happening there? Or how do you think, do you, or let me cast this question another way. Do you feel like in subs that people try to differentiate uh, the product on a price basis or do they try to differentiate on a content basis? I think the price doesn't matter. Yeah. The price matters to nobody. And it, it didn't in the past. And once the space gets crowded, I don't think it will either. I really, I'm really convinced that users want to use a meditation app. They're not going to download three of them and look how much it is. They're going to mm-hmm. look at the delight of, oh, I'm convinced that I'm going to stick to it. Or I love that branding. Or I've seen this ad 20 times. I'm even sure like there's like, people see a bunch of ads and they don't even remember if it's that brand or that brand. And suddenly they stumble upon one because of another ad or featuring or whatever it is. And they say, oh yeah, this time I'm going to go for it. Like sort of branding is more dilute and I think prices doesn't matter at all. What I think is going to change is that is the brand part. Like the content, actually, I don't think people are going to compare it either because their churn is so high. Of course, those who have a superior product in terms of onboarding and content will win on the very long term, although they don't on the very short term sometimes, which is disturbing, but whatever. But I think the power of brand comes in in relay when you reach that that stage of maturity. And if you look at the space that are most crowded, they're hard to enter because people start associating the the activity with just a few brands. If you think that you're going to do cycle inside your house, well, that's it. It's taken. I'm going to pull it yeah. on tomorrow, you know? And I think meditation has almost got to that stage where you've got these two very big players that have taken the most of the space. And I was reading numbers that they're making, I don't know, 80% of the total of the vertical or something. You're talking about Calm and Headspace. Yeah, I'm talking about Calm and Headspace here. I think it's what? true so, in various to, verticals. It's true in language just, learning. It's true in, in many verticals. Sorry to I'll go off on a tangent here. What do you think you've heard about Headspace? They kind of did a reorg. They're uh, it seems like they're kind of pivoting to B2B. Oh, yeah. All right. That will only be the second pivot then. No, I don't know about that. Yeah, the, I know their about the founder, first pivot, but I'm not willing to speak about that either. <laughs> yeah, their, C, their CEO and COO, I think, both stepped down, and the president who had a long history in B2B stepped up so i'm just i don't know i'm just wondering if maybe there are even there maybe there's not even two leaders maybe there's not even a pepsi and coke in 
meditation. No. Maybe it's just you in know, some calm. in some spaces just one. Huh? Actually, if you look at the language learning space, the the challenger they're really big. Like, and I'm thinking memorize or babble or other. Just yeah. Duolingo is like so much bigger than all right. the contenders. It is insane. So some markets will have just one player who takes it all because the app store are made this way. I think a lot of vertical one will have two players, but a lot of verticals, they will also have like, you can still survive being the number three, four or five in the category. You can still make very good revenue. Then mm -hmm. it comes to another thing, which is a mega problem, which is most of these companies, they are VC backed and the VC, they want the category leader and it's yeah. shoot for the moon or explode trying. And yeah. a lot of these companies could be number three, four or five in their vertical, could be profitable, could handle a team of 20, 50 or whatever, but they've never gonna reach Duolingo, Karma or Tinder status. Yeah. Uh, and as they try, they're, they're gonna explode doing it. And I think it's the, the logic of the app store is really winner takes all. The logic of VC is really winner takes all. Um, and, and it's kind of creates like this race towards concentration on one or, or two brands. What I think is interesting in this conversation is that especially in some verticals where the brand was actually not that important at the beginning. And if you go back three or four years ago, actually Calm had no brand. It was pure performance. They didn't have a name. Like, and Headspace yeah. had a very strong brand, like with the colors and the, the character yeah. and the voice, everybody recognized the voice and so on. Eventually right. yeah, it's a right. brand that become the brand. What I'm seeing is in space that become crowded, come a fact because we're all so easy putting a million amounts in, into Google and Facebook and reaching that point and then plateauing at that point. Like it happens yeah. to a lot of subscription. Uh, does, I say, okay, yeah. what do I need to know now? And now I need to build a brand. And I think it's like sort of, oh, it's too late, dude. You should have started that before. Like, um, and the, like sort of branding takes the relay at, at some point uh, in that, in, in, in a few verticals. But if it's already taken, like don't start putting 50 million on the table to build your brand. That space is taken. That's it. People are going to come tonight and they're going to do a lingo today. They're not going to like, you know, uh, that said, even when a market is taken, there's still space to make good business. Like uh, I still see, I don't know. I was reading uh, Ryan Hoover uh, with a super cool um, fitness new app that is launching now. And there's still always space to innovate in every one of these verticals. It's called Fitness AI. I think this one I mentioned. Um, and there's always space to innovate. There's always space to be number three or four. And maybe you're a team of 10 and everybody's making a million a year. That's fantastic. Congrats, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's honestly the tragedy um, that I, you know, see, unfortunately, and very often is it's like a company that's like in the process of dying, right? Uh, that otherwise would have been a really, really uh, sort of like lucrative for everyone uh, bootstrap company, but but for raising money, yeah. right? Because uh, I mean, once you do that, it's like, I think people don't get that. And it's weird, because um, it almost feels like it's in everyone's best interest for like, for for VCs to go through that education process, right? When, before they before they make an investment, like, hey, look, by the way, um, you know, we expect you to try to be a category leader, billion dollar company here, and you know, anything less, and uh, you're not really fulfilling, you know, your sort of like fiduciary duty at this point, at the point of raising money, and so we're probably going to have to, you know, fire you, uh, or you know, just like pressure you to just spend more money and grow more. But like you see companies that are just like, okay, well, you know, growth is stalled out, um, raised a bunch of money, the money's gone, uh, right? And uh, you know, they 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 uh, and but they still have the pressure, right? They still have the the kind of um, 
the accountability. And, you know, there's just no way to really turn it around. Uh, but that would have been an amazing business to be a part of, um, you know, had it just been bootstrapped. And it could have been bootstrapped, right? Like it was it was doing well before they took the money. Because actually, the, the, the thing about subscription apps is you can get one off the ground, right? I mean, relatively inexpensively, right? And you could grow it to a, a million a month or a couple million a month in revenue without needing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of sort of like financial support up front be because you, you're getting paid up front. The subscription gets paid to you up front, right? So you get the money. Like you're selling something, you're immediately getting money for it. Um, you know, and if you can work out the economics, so like the, the, the marketing economics are actually like a lot more sort of approachable for a small bootstrapped company than like a, a gaming company where I'm paying, you know, up front and I'm actually uh, realizing the sort of revenue over some like long period of time. And that LTV recoup period has to be really long just to be competitive, right? But if I'm subscription, I could be, you know, one month, you know, ROAS positive, right? Because I get paid up front and I pay up, you know, I pay up front. So I get my margin right then and there and I can reinvest it. And so you see a lot of easy, uh, a lot of subscription companies who raised VC just like, because they wanted to sort of like unlock some explosive growth. And unfortunately they had already reached their sort of like plateau and now they're just going to die. Um, you know, where, where, whereas it might've been like a really lucrative company for everyone involved had they just sort of like remained bootstrapped. It's, it's I think it's, it's tragic to see that happen. You make me sad, one, because I've, I've lived it firsthand and, and, and I've left a company I love and someone on the table to one that happened exactly the way you described. And two, because this is very common. This is not the outlier. This is the normal. Like this is the, this is the likely scenario, uh, like the plateau and then fucking explosion because uh, also for many reasons, like some people are over ambitious compared to the market release. Some people you just have to try. And if you fail, it's, it's nothing. You move to the next yeah. one. But it's a very, very, very common scenario. Thing is, I'm starting to see a second sort of wave now of founders that don't want this to happen again. And are telling me, I still take small investment at the beginning, like what the US would call precede, which in South of Europe is like series A or something, but whatever, <laughs> like, uh, which is, I take this to accelerate the very beginning and reach mm -hmm. to that phase where I'm at 1 million a month, but then I'm going to pay that guy back over time, but I'm not letting anyone else in because I want to be a small team of 10, 20. I don't want this to like, and we can be 10 or 20 people, make everybody decent money, repay the very tiny first investor and not, not explode the company and live well. And I'm seeing a lot of like second wave founder starting companies now under this model Maybe yeah. because they've seen that the first model is just churning so many apps. Like it's, it's, it's tragic. Like you say, I'm seeing it very often. Like it's a, it's a very common situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that also it's, it's like the, the opportunity cost too. It's like, if you raise money, you're stuck to that company till it dies or exits. Right. I mean, you can't just leave You're you're, you know, just even just reputationally, you wouldn't want to take that damage. Right. So like, well, okay. I'm at a company that's slowly dying. Um, you know, we're going to try everything we can to sort of turn it around and get the growth trajectory, you know, back, um, onto something, you know, sort of like uh, more meaningful, but we're pretty sure it's never going to happen, but I know that's going to take three years to just like totally run out of money and die. And in the meantime, you know, that's three years of my life that I'm just watching every single day, this company sort of like deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate. But, uh, I'm kind of just, you know, ethically obligated, uh, to stay cause I took the money. I don't know. I, you know, what's interesting is what I'm seeing happening in gaming more is you know for companies to to you know small team 
yeah, we'll raise, like you said, we'll raise some money because, you know, we just don't have the the sort of personal wherewithal to, to finance this. We'll raise some money, but what we're going to do is we're just going to pay you back in dividends. Like we're going to dividend out, you know, and it's kind of like maybe it's it's got some like really high cap. Um, or, you know, and and then also what they're doing is like people saying like, look, we're, we're approaching this as like, you know, a lot of, because a lot of times, you know, in gaming, and, and this is maybe less so the case now, I think gaming has kind of had a, um, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's going through this sort of like uh, renewal period, but, and you know, I don't want to talk about gaming too much, but, but anyway, just talking about the different business model, um, uh, you know, but uh, it's, there's this kind of renaissance happening with gaming where like these games could become billion dollars sort of like businesses just as, as a single title. Um, and so people are realizing like, wow, if this game on its own is, is successful, that could be like a, a, a very large, like sort of like VC backable uh, business. Whereas, you know, 2014 to 2016 games were just seen as like, content components of a broader platform strategy and the platform itself had to be really successful to become a billion dollar business but now that these games on their own could be like very big businesses people are saying okay well maybe we'll raise some money we'll accelerate that kind of um you know that that sort of development period but really what we want to do is we just want to like pay everyone out like the whole team like maybe there's some outside finance uh financiers that own equity but the, t- the team we just pay them in like royalty bonuses like we'll just we'll just um you know, we'll pay you out like some percentage of, of revenue. And so everyone's kind of aligned on growing the top line revenue as much as possible. And then the ownership doesn't, isn't really as meaningful because a lot of the money is just going straight to the, you know, the, a lot of the profits going straight to the employees um, in that moment. But uh, okay, we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to, one thing I wanted to uh, sort of talk about, I know this wasn't, this is a little bit maybe outside of like your core focus, but like streaming video. Um mm-hmm. I think when you talk about race to the bottom, you we might be seeing that there, right? Because we, you, you know, I think yeah. with Disney Plus is the example, right? Came in at a much lower price point. Um, you know, I think that's that's getting like hyper competitive in a way that, um, you know, the content is kind of the the core driver of retention, and you see that with like Netflix, right? Churn is like steady. It's like a it's like a flat line at like two percent or something. It is now, but it it won't necessarily be forever, and I, I think like. Content subscription are extremely different from the other app subscription we yeah. were talking before in many ways. Actually, it's funny, like I have less experience in that, but I started my subscription career in a streaming company, the the, the one that is now called Rakuten TV, uh, that is owned by the, the Japanese Amazon. Anyway, the, the huge difference here, I mean, for a little while, there was only one or two, and Spotify has good defensibility now because music is even like super duper problematic in terms of content. But if you look at series and, and movies, used to be like just a couple players, and that was fine, and Netflix has zero churn. But actually, nobody cares that it's Netflix or HBO or Disney or the next one. If they got the next Game of Thrones, people are going to flock there. And I think we're seeing more players now. Like, man, Apple is in that space. Like there's a lot of Amazon is in that space and people don't want to pay for six or eight subscriptions in parallel. Um, and I think they're going to follow the content and like your Netflix, your Apple, your Amazon, you know what? I don't care. I'll stay subscribed for three months. I'll binge watch this and this and that. And then I'm out. Like, I don't think there's a high loyalty to many of those brands. I mean, most people have Amazon Video because they're paying Prime for the delivery, yeah. not because they're loyal to the content that is on Amazon, because the, the content is what really matters. I think Amazon was very clever here because they didn't, they managed to not tie it with the content. You're not a subscriber of Amazon Video because the content is better, but because you're using Amazon for other reasons. 
And, but a lot of the pure streaming video platform, they have a huge problem there. And I think Netflix is in a very good spot because they managed to like build something that is closer to your loyalty because they have their own content. Why, why have they made, put all these billions they made and even billions they don't have that they took in debt in having their own content to be sure that Orange is the New Black or Narcos will never be on Apple TV, HBO, Amazon, and you name it, and Disney Plus and so on, because they know the next season of Narcos and the next season of any of those is going to come back. Whereas you take, uh, uh, like, I mean, for example, the Friends content, and you've got this community that wants to look at it for the 25th time, like my wife. Well, if that content moves from that platform to that platform, she's going to move with it because she yeah. wants to have it all the time. Like, and she doesn't care one bit if it's, if it's HBO or Disney+. Plus. I think Disney is also on a solid path to that because they've got so much of this uh, first-party content. So I really give them a massive edge over a lot of the other incumbents. Well, that, yeah, I, I agree. I, and I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, it was interesting to see that start to like, cause when that started to happen, it was, it was like the first domino fell and everyone started pulling their stuff off Netflix. Yep. Right. And then just, and you know, they, they're probably planning to do that from the very beginning. I mean, it takes a while to build out a streaming service, but I think um, my, so and we're, ta we're talking the day after Quibi announced they're shutting down. My kind of hypothesis around Quibi was always that they just weren't equipped to run a consumer tech company. These weren't like, there wasn't like consumer tech DNA in the leadership of the company. Um, and they did, I, my, I wrote an article about why they did their, their sort of marketing wrong. They approached it from like a movie release. You know, they approached it with like a movie release playbook. Like let's do big, uh, high profile uh, spots, TV spots. Um, and it's just awareness. And they didn't approach it from like kind of a, just a user-based growth perspective. Um, and I think they, they did do that wrong, but I'm coming more, I'm coming around more and more to the idea that the problem was just that they didn't have killer content. Like if they had one killer, uh, tentpole show, they would have had some stickiness, but they just didn't have that. And I think another issue is that I didn't realize this at first, but they didn't actually own any of those show IPs. <laughs> they, they, they like were licensing them for like two years. I think that was just to entice people to come onto the platform and, and develop for the platform, but. Um, if they had that one killer show, I mean, they would have had some, some foundation to this user base that they could have built on, but they didn't have, there was just the content. Like they didn't have one killer show that people couldn't like live without. Yeah. I tend to agree on that because I mean, of course there's a lot of, of easy criticism right now on why they failed and why everybody saw it coming and whatever and so on. There's one thing people are, are not seeing here is that you can't build Quibi the way you build a startup. You can't iterate small and then grow bigger. Like you have to come in big. Like this is a market where you can't iterate very slowly. And they made that bet of going very big. And I think it, in, in that kind of market, it might be the only way. You can't be a small player there. You're going to die. No. The thing is, yeah, having, you need this killer content that, I mean, you, you open that platform, people, they're not going to pay to see what kind of content there is. And it's something that really kills it. Like, you need a, a Game of Thrones level content to be right. like yeah. or Mandalorian content because of the Star Wars uh, IP. Exactly. Like yeah. And and even though they would have made it, I'm very I didn't know this fact about the fact that they're renting the IPs for two years and and that they don't own the content. I think it's massively problematic because then they would have been in the situation that people subscribe, they're happy with it, they get accustomed to the new format that I don't think was stupid idea to have shorter format at all. And it might uh, succeed in another way later, but then they would have watched that and that content flux somewhere else. And because it's, 
I mean, those IPs, they're very community, you know, people are hooked to them. Yeah. I've watched it many times. And there's a new season, no matter how bad it is, I mean, people are going to look at it no matter what. And then the next one is even worse and people are going to keep looking at it. And some, some series, they milk this for like 17 seasons. It doesn't matter. Like people are hooked. And this, you need to bet on this for the very long term. As soon as your content two years contract expire, people are going to flock on the next one that has it. So here, my take is, I don't know if they were doomed to, to fail that fast. But at the end, that kind of detail that you just said is, for me, is, is the, the, the opposite way of thinking about this, this content business. People right. are not going to come to Quibi because of Quibi. They're going to come to Quibi because of there is this and that and that. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I kind of made that point in the, um, the, the one I had, I had one take on Quibi. I had one hot take. Uh, I published it a couple of months ago. I, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't, uh, a lot of people are having, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the, the, the sort of uh, in, in zone celebrations right now, uh, which I thought, you know, uh, I, I didn't think Quibi was enough of uh, a presence to even have multiple takes on it or have like a really strong, strongly held uh, opinion. Um, Thomas, this was a really fascinating conversation. I want to thank you very much. How can people find you? How can they find you online? I'm a very easy guy to find. Uh, I'm pretty much on, on Twitter often at, at Thomas BCN. And I actually just launched a very recent newsletter on, on app marketing and a lot of it on subscription, which you can find at madv.io mad for madventure mobile adventure i just launched it um and yeah give it a shot and send me your criticism i'll be happy to receive it too thank you so much have a great day yeah thanks eric bye-bye